Would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5? Romans chapter 5. I love this passage that we'll be talking about this morning. It is a beautiful portion of our holy scriptures. And we'll get into the details, of course, since what sermons are good for. But in general, what I love about this passage is that it elevates things out of a kind of milk toast religiosity and into great truth and high beauty. Out of a, that kind of Christianity that is so common. I get that phrase uh, from Mindy Kaling, who is, who, she's an a actor and comedy writer who wrote and acted for various shows like The Office. And her parents are from India, and she is very funny. And she's written a series of short stories about her life, uh, from her life, and one of them is called Kind of Hindu. And uh, she's wrestl- in it, she's wrestling with how she likes certain elements of the religion of her ancestors, but she's not really all that interested in it, not really full-blown religious. She just admits she's just kind of Hindu. And just like her, but maybe less honest about it, there are so many people who are just kind of Christian. But kind of Christianity is so foreign to the New Testament and so lame compared to the portrait we are presented with. A bland, half-hearted religious sentiment can't hold a candle to what we see in Romans 5. When this text talks about hope, We don't see a a generic, bland wish for the best, which is what we usually mean by hope. No, here's a certain, hard-won hope of the glory of God. Hope to rejoice in. And when it talks about suffering, we don't see that kind of detached denial, that grin-and-bear-it pseudo-happiness in hard times. No, there's actual joy in suffering, through suffering. And in this text, there's, there's also this deep supernatural filling and completion. Experiential and transformational. Not just superficially placated desires and longings. Not just... A, and, and not just... Uh, he doesn't just give us a self-esteem boost or a don't-be-so-hard-on-yourself mentality, but an actual objective peace with God that we can point to with certainty. And not just a morally restrained life, but a graciously sustained life. This text tells us that we stand in God's grace. We are filled with God's love. And we hope in God's glory. So without the love of God, we are empty. Without the glory of God, we are hopeless. Without the grace of God, we fall. I'm telling you, this is, this is real life. This is good stuff in Romans 5. So let's read it together. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is what we'll read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The first thing I want to point out from this text is that hope is something to rejoice in. We have hope, and it is a glorious hope, solid certainty of the ultimate good. That is something to celebrate. Hope is a life-changing gift. And I think that the, one of the best pictures of this kind of hope that Paul is talking about here is Betsy Ten Boom. And in the book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom writes about her time with her sister Betsy in the Nazi concentration camp called Ravensbrück, which is as terrible and hellish of a place as you can imagine. And when, and when you read it, you can't wait to meet Betsy one day. She was a force of hope and light. Her and her sister with the Bible that they managed to sneak in to the camp, the Bible that Corey says was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. And at one point, Betsy's failing health moves her and Corey to work as knitters in flea-infested barracks. And Corey writes, thus began the closest, most joyous weeks of all the time in Ravensbrook, side by side in the sanctuary of God's fleas. Betsy and I ministered the word of God to all in the room. We sat by deathbeds that became doorways of heaven. We watched as women who had lost everything grow rich in hope. The knitters of Barracks 28 became the praying heart of the vast diseased body that was Ravensbrook, interceding for all in the camp, guards under Betsy's prodding, as well as prisoners. We prayed beyond the concrete walls for the healing of Germany, of Europe, of the world. I love that they said they saw women who had lost everything grow rich in hope. And later, as Betsy was dying of health issues related to their terrible living conditions, she told her sister, Corey, that we must tell people what we've learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, for we have been here. And she's right on both accounts. God is deeper than the deepest pit. She's also right you should listen to her because she's been in that pit. And the Apostle Paul been there too. Betsy's words and Paul's words, they aren't cheap. Christian hope is profoundly great because through it, we actually can rejoice in suffering. Like Betsy and like Paul, we can rejoice in suffering, not despite suffering, but in it, through suffering. That's an important clarification because there is a kind of superficial first floor faith that can be unhelpfully dismissive of suffering, pretending like it doesn't affect you or shouldn't, or trying to ignore it or somehow be apathetic or detached which can become a facade or cynicism, callous cynicism. And there's even more developed forms of false spirituality, like some modern new age spirituality or even Buddhism, which say since suffering is just the loss of things that you desire, well, then you just got to get rid of all desire, remove or kill that part of you that wants, that loves. But these are dangerous, slippery slopes. C.S. Lewis talks about this kind of approach in his book, The Four Loves. He says, To love at all 
is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. I think what Lewis is saying is that we can fight to avoid all suffering and make that what our life is about. And if we fail, we will have suffered in vain. If we succeed, we will have lived in vain. But most of us won't succeed. We will suffer. But our suffering will be petty and purposeless. We may not be able to choose whether or not we suffer, but we can choose the kind of suffering we will face by what we organize our lives around. If our lives are driven by love, like Lewis said, to love is to be vulnerable and risk tragedy, tragedy that we could avoid by locking up our hearts safe and sound in a coffin of apathy and selfishness. But that's not a life worth living. A life worth living is a life of love and therefore a life of vulnerability and of risk and inevitably suffering. But it's suffering that's worth it. Suffering that we can embrace as the cost of a life worth living. Suffering that we can have confidence that Jesus will join us in the midst of as we look to him and invite him into it. Suffering that, yes, we can even rejoice in because it will ultimately refine our great hope it will expand our hope of the glory of God that is the driving joy of this life. A hope of such weight and of such scale and scope that it bathes everything in a new light. But listen, it doesn't diminish trials or tribulations. If anything, our hope and faith makes us understand the brokenness of this world and the lostness of sin in even more vivid and devastating detail. Paul talks about the paradox of true Christians as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We actually have sorrow that comes because of our faith. Did you know that? I mean, right? We believe that the brokenness of this world is not just random chaos, but is groaning under a curse, fallen from a more perfect state. We have sorrow over the lostness of people, especially loved ones. We have sorrow over the sin in our own lives that is greater than a mere guilty conscience, but the grieving of a loved one. And then we have the truth that our faith puts us at odds with the world, which brings various kinds of suffering. But even through all of this, our hope is infinitely greater it is, even while raising the stakes of suffering, true hope of the gospel is of such immensity that it dwarfs the suffering of this present age by comparison. And not only that, it is of such power that it can actually work backwards into the pain and even into sin and transform it into glory. That's what Paul points to when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our 
inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Corey Timboom, she writes about that, uh, that reality without referencing this verse explicitly, but it just, I, I could just see this verse coming out of her because she wrote this. Listen, life in Ravensbrook to, took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. Now let me read you that, second, that Corinthians passage again. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And don't dismiss Paul as naive for calling his afflictions light and momentary. Paul's afflictions were actually lifelong and quite severe. They were only momentary when he compared them to eternity. And they were only light when he compared them to the weight of glory. But the most important thing I want to draw your attention to in that passage is how he says that our afflictions prepare glory. Eternally weighty glory. Glory beyond all comparison. And in some mysterious way, our present momentary suffering actually works towards and even contributes to it. That is the power of the glory of God. That is our hope. That is why we do not lose heart, he says. Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And I lean wholly on Paul's personal experience and divine inspiration when I say with him the incredible truth that we and the world will be more beautiful for having been broken. Our renewal is more than a restoration to a previous state. It is a transformation into something more glorious than we could have been otherwise. It is only through death that resurrection comes. This is one of the most profound and hopeful aspects of Christianity, of our faith in Jesus, that he brings glory out of suffering. And when we struggle to see how that could be so, which sometimes uh, that is a struggle, how, how could that be possible? He invites us to look to the central pillar of our faith where he proved that he could and he would. The cross where the greatest suffering led to the greatest glory. The greatest evil resulted in the greatest good. And he says, I will be doing that in your suffering as you walk with me through it. I will be with you and work in you and for you glory. I will give you hope. And this hope, this confidence, it's at the beginning and at the end of the, of the storms of life that we enter into. It leads us in and it refined, it's refined and multiplied through the storm, this hope of ours. Notice how it says in verse 2 in this passage that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope. And then in verse 3, we go through suffering and endurance and character. And then comes what? Hope. 
It's at the beginning and the end of, that, of those trials. Hope is such a gift, such a blessing, that, and such a, a God-glorifying disposition that he blesses us with it and then he works in our lives to never let it fade. To cultivate it and grow it, to refine it and strengthen it. Hope, it leavens our sorrows like bread dough so that the, the heat of affliction bakes us rather than burning us. And we experience renewal rather than degradation. And, and that is what this text is talking about with that chain of events. From rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God to rejoicing in suffering as suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. But one of the first questions I asked of this text was, how does character produce hope? He says character produces hope. How does that happen? Well, what kind of character does endurance and suffering produce in a Christian? What kind of character would you expect to come as, as a Christian when you face suffering and endure through it? The kind that is more God-reliant. The kind that is more God-glorifying. That shows him to be your sustainer and your treasure. So don't think, yeah, like when he talks about that, like don't think that, yes, go, going through hard times, it toughens you up you know, or makes you some kind of generic better person that's less spoiled. That's not what he's talking about. Although that's true sometimes. Going through suffering can't make people less insufferable. But God is after more than that. What God is after is the same thing that Paul said our hope is in, which is what? The glory of God. So when we see such character that glorifies God, it bolsters our hope in the glory of God. Because as we endure suffering with Christ, we develop reverent humility, thankful contentment, Godward boldness and compassion and freedom and greater longing for the world to come. In other words, greater hope. The author Andrew Wilson was meditating on the numerous times the Bible compares us to, to jars or uh, pots. And he says that the treasure we carry, it's indestructible, powerful, eternal, glorious, but the vessels in which we carry it are all too fragile. Recognizing that we are pots may not make us any less likely to smash, he says, but it will make us less surprised when we do and more inclined to trust that God's power will be shown in the process. And he says this, when we break, he breaks through. I love that. When we break, he breaks through. That's how the character that emerges in Christians as we suffer produces hope. Because we see him break through. But I also love that image of us as pots, as vessels to be filled. Because that's the image that Paul uses here of our, he's painting of our hearts in this text when he says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, God's love, or, or love of God, in, in, literally in the Greek, two ways you can read that phrase is either uh, typically maybe is uh, our love for God or God's love for us. But there's another way that scripture talks about it, the love of God. And that is the actual attribute of God. 
his very own love, that part of who he is extended toward us and in us, his loving character, which involves both his love for us and and then is reflected back to him in our love for him and then overflows out of us in love for others. Like in 1 John 4, which says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So God's love in these passages is is his own love as a power filling us and overflowing out of us, a primary marker of his presence within us. And in this sense, it encompasses both of those other meanings of the phrase and much more. It is a spiritual substance that fills us and completes us. His love that we experience and receive and then reflect back to him in in love for him and overflowing and extending it to others. Notice in our Romans 5 passage how he ties it to the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. So this love of God is poured into us by the Holy Spirit, who we know from other important passages, dwells within us, manifesting his own character through us as the fruit of his presence. And the first and most important of these fruits is love. Galatians 5.22, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. God is so loving. He is the source of all true love. His love is powerful and abundant. And he loves you. He loves you so much. He wants to invite you into that love, share his love with you, fill you with his love so that that you're flooded with it to experience it, to be changed by it. We prayed this morning, John led us in that prayer in Ephesians that Paul prayed to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So according to that passage and that prayer, if we are to have our void filled with the fullness of God, the only means is to intimately know the love of Christ. The love of God is what we need to fill our void. It is what we lack. Remember when the rich young ruler approached Jesus and he was intrigued by Jesus's uh, teaching about eternal life and, and wants to know how he can attain it. And after telling Jesus he's kept all the commandments, he asked, what do I still lack. And Jesus responds, if you would be perfect, teleos. It's a word meaning complete, meaning obviously by the context, not lacking. Then he says, go sell what you, what you possess, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus tells the man his holiness is incomplete. So what is he lacking? Well, there's another place that Jesus uses this word teleos, uh, perfect or complete. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And the surprising thing about that context is that when he commands us to be perfect in the Sermon on the Mount, it comes right right when you might expect him to tell us to love. Because the very preceding verses right before it are Jesus's world-changing teaching on enemy love, which he immediately follows with, therefore, you must be perfect or complete as your heavenly father is complete. We must be complete in a way that God is complete, is what Jesus says. Or to say it another way, we must have our emptiness filled with what God is full of. And to this need, the apostle Paul says, 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what the rich young man and the Pharisees were lacking. Participation in the love of God. When Jesus prays for his disciples right before he goes to die for them, in one of the most profound and beautiful verses of scripture, he closes his high priestly prayer by saying this, the love with which you, he's talking to the father, love which with you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus indwells us. He says, filling us with his presence. And in his eyes, this indwelling of his person is intimately connected with the indwelling of God's love. Do you see that in that passage? The very same love that the eternal father has for his eternal son. It's clear why Paul calls it love that surpasses knowledge. Jesus' high hope for his people is that we would be filled and completed by the incomprehensible intertrinitarian love of God. And now that you can see, now you can see how this, this love that's poured into us by the Holy Spirit, it means that our hope will not put us to shame, which is what Paul says here. This love poured into us is so great, so satisfying, so transforming, and connected to the life of God. And he fills us. We are vessels in need of filling. But of course, we're more than that. Because even before the Holy Spirit pours his love into us, he breathes his breath into our lungs. We are living things, in other words. And as such, when we experience emptiness and lack, it results in what? Hunger and longing. We yearn and ache for that which completes us. When we see when we live in the truth and see the light, we sing with the psalmist, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for he satisfies the longing soul. Psalm 107. But it is the love of God that satisfies our longings and desires. But in our blindness and in our brokenness, we often try to satisfy our hearts with empty things that cannot satisfy when I was in culinary school, uh, one of my professors was advocating for smaller portions, uh, particularly in multi-course meals, and he explained with a proverb that blew my mind at the time, hunger is the best spice. He was saying that an artfully and painstakingly prepared course could be underappreciated or even ruined by preceding portions that are too large, right? Think filling up on the free chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant. In our desperate scramble to fill the rumbling tummy of our souls, we spoil our appetite. There's so many things that claim they will fill us up while tasting sublime, and we take them up on the offer only to find out they don't fill us up for long or at all. In his book on fasting, John Piper argues that this is why God created hunger and thirst, to help us understand the longing of our souls for the bread of life. And then he wrote, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with the small things and there's no room for the great. The example of food, it's a more benign version of what happens in addiction. In addiction, a quick fix replaces the substantial and healthy form of fulfillment. A good desire is beaten to submission rather than truly satisfied. 
which leaves a person with temporary relief of sorts, but it's haunted by the anxiety and existential dread. And since it's not the proper object of these desires, whatever the addictive substance is inevitably causes harm for the person and problems, while at the same time whispering the lie that it can cure those same problems that it's created. It's a terrible cycle. And we're all in it. Because we misplace our desires and we become dependent on the poor substitutes. When the people of Israel desired a king in order to be like the other nations, the prophet Samuel cautioned them, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. He's almost redundant in how he he reiterates emptiness. The emptiness of the things we pursue. They were trying to fill the void with things that could never fill it because they too are empty. And God says through another prophet, Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We fool ourselves by our effort, he's saying, working hard to hew out cisterns in hopes of satisfying our thirst, but we don't realize our efforts are in vain because the cisterns we have hewn are broken and hold no water. All the while, there is this fountain of water which can quench our insatiable thirst and satisfy our deepest longings. And Jesus, he offered people this water the most notable of whom was the Samaritan woman that he met at a well. Because Jesus, he helps her see that her soul needs something to live the way her body needs water. She's been thirsting for this water without recognizing it. And she's been desperately trying to quench her thirst by taking gulps of the spiritual equivalent of salt water. And it's left her even more thirsty. Through Jesus' penetrating questions with her, he reveals that this woman has attached her, her desire for love to man after man. And Samuel, he confronted Israel for attaching their desire for significance and safety to a human king. And we too misplace our desires, attaching them to empty things that cannot profit or deliver. Our desire for freedom attached to rebellion. Our desire for peace attached to control Our desire for compassion attached to sympathy. A desire for hope attached to politics. Our desire for rest attached to lethargy. Our desire for contentment attached to greed. I could go on and on. But there is one whom these desires were meant for. And he can satisfy us far more completely. The incredible thing about Jesus' offer to the Samaritan woman in that story too is, is not only that she would be satisfied by his living water, but that she would be transformed by it from the inside out because he says to her this, the water that I can give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, he's saying, I'll put a living water spring inside of you. I can change you not only into not only a container, but a conduit of my life and grace. John's gospel tells us that this living water, later it tells us this, that it refers to God's spirit. And we see in Romans 5 that through this same spirit, God's love is poured into our hearts, filling us up, transforming us, 
producing solid, sustaining hope through which we rejoice. But Paul doesn't just talk about what's in us. He also talks about what we are in. In verse 2, that through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have been granted access into something. Into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. You and I are immersed in grace. Upholded by surrounding grace. Sustained by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes we only have half the picture of the way the New Testament talks about the grace of God. Because it's not only undeserved favor. It is that, but it's not just his choice to do good for us when we don't deserve it. And it's definitely not just something that he, like a way that he acted toward us in the past. The New Testament again and again talks about grace as a power from God that continues to act in us for good and for glory. And this text is a, a prime example, but let me give you another. Like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. This is primary to living the Christian life, trusting in his sustaining grace. The proper response to grace that is given to us in the past is gratitude, thankfulness. And the proper response to grace promised to us in the future is faith, confidence. Grace fills our past present and future. And we must remember that in faith. The devil wants us to forget and to forsake this truth. And at another point in the hiding place, Corey Timboom writes very transparently about her own sin struggles in the concentration camp. How in that place, the devil was particularly adept at the temptation to think of only oneself, she says which took a thousand cunning forms. And she gives specific examples, which I won't recount, but she says that the great ploy of Satan in that kingdom of his was to display such blatant evil that one could almost believe one's secret sins didn't matter. So as she excuses her selfishness and argued for it in the name of ministry and called it by other names, she says it grew like a cancer until her joy in worship was destroyed and her ministry became lifeless. But then she says, one drizzly afternoon, when just enough light came through the window to read by, she came to Paul's account of his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, and how God responded, my grace is sufficient for you. And she says those words seemed to leap from the page when Paul concluded that his very weakness was something to give thanks for because now Paul knew that nothing that followed his ministry was due to his own virtues. It was all Christ's strength, never Paul's. And she realized my real sin laid in thinking that any power to help or transform came from me. Of course it was not my wholeness, she says, but Christ's that made the difference. And that night, she told the women around her the truth about herself. And she says that joy returned to her worship. She had forgotten her standing in God's grace. That it is grace that is sufficient for her, not her own strength or virtue. And when God reminded her, she leaned on him and his wholeness. And in that, she rejoiced, just like Paul said, Let us not forsake this incredible privilege. I love the way Paul says it. We have access. 
access into this. Think of the privilege of having some kind of past that gives you access into a place that you, be, that you long to be. Through Jesus and our faith in him, we have access into this grace in which we stand. May we live out that truth, trusting in his grace to sustain us and empower us rather than trusting in ourselves. And may we remember that this access, it comes through faith in Jesus, through him, trusting him, hoping in him, loving him, relying on him and receiving his grace with thankful hearts. It's only because of Jesus and what he has done. Paul says this access is through Jesus, but he also says that one other thing is through Jesus in this text, doesn't he? In the previous verse, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people wrongly assume that peace with God is the default for us, but it isn't. Peace with God only comes through the peacemaker. Without him, we are the opposite of at peace with God. And in as many antonyms for peace as you can come up with, enmity, strife, conflict, rebellion, yes, even war, and to lack peace with God is the only truly dreadful position to be in. But through Jesus, we have peace with God. Not mere subjective peace that's fleeting or conditional. No, this objective peace that we can point to and have confidence in. The cross is the literal stake in the ground marking God's commitment and accomplishment of this peace. And don't misunderstand God because of this, though. Remember that text right before this one that Pastor Tim preached last week. What does it say? Who, who does it say we are to believe in in that text? The one who raised Jesus from the dead. And it says that Jesus was delivered up for our sins. It's talking passively about Jesus, that someone else delivered him up. That text is placing the emphasis for our salvation on God the Father. Redemption was his initiative. Yes, Jesus gave himself as well, but it is equally true that the Father sent him because he loved us. He wants peace with you. He does. If you have any other view of him, it's wrong. He wants peace with you so much that he sent his son to make a way for that peace. Amen. And Jesus is the path of peace that he has given to us. And that path is taken by faith. Believe in him. And be at peace with God and stand in his grace and hope in his glory and be filled with his love through his spirit. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for making a way through your son for us to be at peace with you. And we thank you for your spirit pouring your love into us to supply our lack. I pray that we live out of that fullness of love as we stand in your grace, upheld by your grace, and give us such deep hope in your glory that we will rejoice in it and even rejoice in the refining of it. We pray in faith through your son, Jesus. Amen.